I had my first interaction with police in eighth grade or maybe seventh grade, I believe. And then high school, it was just even more abrasive, even more blatant. And so it was very much in like an authoritative, oppressive police culture type of school landscape. That's Desiree McSwain Mims. She goes by Des. She grew up in San Leandro, which borders East Oakland. And she experienced a lot of policing on her middle school and high school campuses. I was always a very vocal, outspoken, rambunctious young Black girl. And my personality was always being crushed and oppressed in school systems. I was in a continuation school that operated just like a prison. And we had pat-down searches every morning. And we had people accompany us to the bathroom. We went to the bathroom. So it was a very dehumanizing experience. Des expressing that her school felt like a prison is not something that is uncommon for folks that attend public schools in the Bay Area that have a high Black population, especially in the town. Des had her first interaction with the police on campus when she was only in the eighth grade. In addition to my first police interaction in middle school, I was also arrested in eighth grade. And then in high school, I was actually arrested and expelled my freshman year. So I never got to complete a full year of high school. And the law enforcement interactions themselves are triggering and are traumatic, definitely given the societal landscape between Black and brown communities and policing. Dez got arrested for drinking on campus in middle school. And I mean, we're talking about like a bottle of like juice watered down alcohol that like five, six kids are sharing. So it wasn't anything crazy for sure. But it was one of those scenarios where if you had like an adult from the community or like somebody who's black or brown and who's empathetic and understanding, that could have been solved with like a heart to heart or, you know, like, let me take you aside and let me talk to you. Like, is something going on? Is there issues? Like, there was no question as to why we were doing that. And there may not have been a reason. I mean, kids do just silly stuff like that, obviously. Like, that's part of being a kid sometimes is having those experiences. But what the school chose to do was not ask us what happened, not even identify who was all involved, but just assume, go off what they thought they saw, and then just immediately refer to the police. Looking back on it now, like imagining myself sitting sideways, uncomfortable on my arms, handcuffed in the back of the seat at like 13, I'm thinking about Freddie Gray and other people who were in the same scenario and it was one decision away from a fatality or one decision away from a real serious incident. If a white student was caught drinking in high school, it probably would have meant just a slap on the wrist. But for Dez and other black and brown students at our middle school and high school, dealing with police officers was almost an everyday occurrence on campus. When students were sent to the office, there was a high chance that they would be escorted by a police officer. Or sometimes the teachers or school administration would call a police officer to come to a classroom if they thought the students were being too loud. And it was like, they're treating me like I'm a criminal, like I'm you know, I had attempted murder on my charge or something like that. Like we are talking about school fights and very minor and very common youth behavior, not specific to black and brown, but just very common youth behaviors. And so it was obvious that there was a relationship between police or between law enforcement and the schools. And it was obvious that for whatever reason or behavior that the school just didn't have the capacity to deal with or didn't want to deal with, they would just call the police. (laughs) 
This is Tales of the Town. I'm Delincey Parham. And I'm Abbas Muntakeem. Today on the show, we tell the inside story of the fight to get police off of Oakland Unified School District campuses. A fight that has been ongoing since the years of the Black Panther Party and has impacted students in Oakland for generations. Des, who we heard from earlier, now lives in Oakland. She's the communications coordinator for the Black Organizing Project, which is a Black member-led community organization in the town, working for racial, social, and economic justice through grassroots organizing and community building. Des and the Black Organizing Project were part of the fight to get school police out of Oakland Unified School District, otherwise known as OUSD. OUSD campuses had their own police force, which we'll talk about later. But first, Dez says that a big reason why she started doing this type of organizing was because of her own experience dealing with police officers at school. That was one of the ways that I was able to also find healing, but also like directly impact and fight against that oppressive system that pushed me out so relentlessly. Schools are like prisons, but no, down to the architecture, they're like prisons. Down to the lighting, they're like prisons. Down to the food sometimes. And then when you actually have paid law enforcement, armed officers patrolling, I mean, it's like, what what else could this be other than a prison? You can ask any black and brown student, like their experience on school, they definitely would be able to tie that correlation between prison culture and school culture. What Dez is referring to is the school-to-prison pipeline, which is when schools that have harsh rules and municipal policies and lack of educational resources frequently push students directly into the system of incarceration. This often happens in public schools that have majority black and brown students, especially if they have police on campus. And this is no coincidence. In the case of the Bay Area and in California, The statutory discrimination that you saw in the books was largely in terms of school discrimination against Mexicans of Indian descent. So laws that were actually written into schooling were directed primarily at Mexican populations. Up until World War II, the largest non-white population is Chinese. But as the Black population grows rapidly, you see a codification of segregation. It's not a legal Jim Crow segregation, it's in practice. So black children being concentrated into particular high schools and, you know, junior high schools and grade schools. That's historian Donna Murch, who we've heard from in previous episodes. She says that this type of policing in schools, specifically in the Bay and in Oakland, was a direct result of the Great Migration. In the 1950s, Oakland Unified School District established its police force in response to black migration to Oakland during and after World War II. White people's racist anxieties about the city's changing demographics, aka because Oakland was becoming more black, led to increased police presence and penal codes in schools. And then there were other racist policies, like redlining, when black southerners settled in California. An eye-opening study tonight sparking discussions about equality here in the Bay Area. That study mapped out the 20 most segregated neighborhoods around the Bay. Nearly all are wealthy and overwhelmingly white. Communities in Contra Costa, San Francisco... So just to recap on redlining, it is the racist and discriminatory practice by the Federal Housing Authority 
corporate developers, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and other banks that prevented black folks from buying a home in white neighborhoods or taking out loans. Lenders would literally draw a line that identified black or brown neighborhoods as quote-unquote riskier and more likely to default on their mortgage, whereas white neighborhoods were considered more desirable for approving a loan. In addition, the 1944 GI Bill that gave World War II veterans low-cost mortgages, low-interest and financial loans to mostly white veterans caused further housing discrimination as well as more segregation. $33 billion was invested into white neighborhoods while black neighborhoods were simultaneously divested from. These segregation policies created hoods, and this was an evolution of Jim Crow segregation in the South. You have housing discrimination of African-Americans being crowded into small neighborhoods in parts of West Oakland and then later parts of East Oakland. One thing that's really striking when you look at these maps of the expansion of the black population as it goes from 2% in 1940 to over 51% in 1980 is that if you look at what that map looks like, it's always these clusters, you know, small, densely populated clusters. And that has to do with housing discrimination. And what this meant for black neighborhoods, not just in the Bay Area, but all over the country, is that their communities lacked billions of dollars worth of resources and infrastructure. In the 60s and 70s, white flight caused white people to move away from cities and into suburbs. The Federal Housing Agency, which often denied loans to black families, actually expanded the growth of suburban white neighborhoods. On top of that, there was urban renewal, also known as Negro removal, which built new water supplies and highways, which consequently destroyed black neighborhoods. Federal and state taxes, along with corporate backing, funded this operation. As black folks were denied the loans being granted to whites, they had to witness these new highways ravage through their neighborhoods, destroying its infrastructure. Urban renewal literally destroyed around 1,600 black neighborhoods in the North and South from the 1930s through the 1970s. As a result of all this, black neighborhoods were more susceptible to being sites to toxic waste dumps, having higher chances of incarceration, and having less funded schools due to the total disinvestment and destruction of these neighborhoods. We are so structurally denied resources. I think that that is like the continuity of our history. It is a political culture of thriving and creating new things, always in the context of being denied resources and being having our resources extracted. It's housing discrimination, it's school discrimination, and then it's the really accelerating sense of a kind of authoritarian, repressive response to Black migrants. So schools in majority Black neighborhoods, like Oakland, often have less educational resources, while also having more disciplinary codes and forms of punishment than white suburban schools. And literally, to appease white residents, Donna says that in 1957, Oakland Unified established its own police force in order to monitor, quote-unquote, troublemaker youth. As schools became more integrated with black students, the priority of these schools shifted from education to policing. And for the last 70 years, the combating of this policing on campuses has been a priority for many black residents in the town. Like we said earlier, we can trace this struggle back to the Panthers. In America, uh, black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people 
or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized, the police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. And the police are there not to, uh, in our community, not to uh, promote our welfare or uh, for our security and our safety, but they're there to contain us, uh, to uh, brutalize us and murder us uh, because they have their orders uh, to do so. In 1973, the Black Panther Party formed an initiative called Coalition to Save Our Schools, which opposed police presence on OUSD campuses. The coalition called for spending money on educational programs and facilities rather than on the police. At the time, Oakland Unified School District proposed a $1.5 million program which would allow them to further monitor students and their families and criminalize them. Some of the ways this was done was by keeping police records on students, enforcing truancy policies, and requiring high schoolers to carry identification cards. In one of their weekly newspapers, the Panthers criticized this program and called out the district for only pushing for increased policing rather than improving the teaching methods and facilities so that students could thrive in a nurturing school environment. Huey Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, experienced white supremacist violence on campus as a child which led to him founding a gang called the Brotherhood to protect him and his peers from white violence. So the fight against police and white violence on campus is at the foundation of the Black Panther Party. Huey Newton's autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide, he is a child of the migration. And he talks about that the worst violence that he experienced was in school. And this is a man who, you know, of course, organizes against the police, but he saw the school system as the first site of injury. All the effects of redlining, urban renewal, and Oakland Unified creating its own police force in the 50s, we still see that impact in schools today. My former student and mentee, Michaela Coates grew up in East Oakland and graduated from an Oakland high school in 2018. Yeah, well, I was living on 68th for like 17 years of my life. So I'm a real East Oakland kid. For the most part, it's, it's a food desert. It doesn't really have a lot of resources or recreational things. Like we don't have a um, boys and girls club in the 60s or anything outside of like after-school programs or the library. And while Michaela's middle school and high school lacked educational resources, like after-school programs, there was, however, a heavy police presence. Going to school in East Oakland, you experience a lot of, like, policing of Black bodies at a young age. If there's not police officers who work within your school, there's most definitely, like, police who is around your school and then, um, surrounding neighborhoods or there's like really militant type of security guards or even teachers take those actions into their own hands. For Michaela and other students in her school, they felt like they were constantly being surveilled. When we walk into the school, we see security guards. When we're in open spaces, able to interact with each other as police. Like, it's all of these eyes that are watching us at all times. I would feel like like school is not the escape from home because it's another set of 
rules set of like people who are going to keep you in your place at all times it's always police and policing of black bodies black girls gotta wear a certain type of clothes and stuff not only was it the physical presence of officers on her middle school campus that made Michaela feel like she was being policed but it was also the way she was treated by staff and school administration for doing things like speaking too much in class being black in school, being woman in school, it's always like I've been experiencing a certain type of violence that isn't talked about when you consider violence. Like people always think, oh, violence is just if somebody hurts you or call you a racial slur or something like, no, like I felt violence when I had to stop participating in class to make room for other people. According to Donna Murch, this type of violence Michaela felt is not an isolated incident. In other words, Michaela, she felt like she has a target on her back. And if we know our history, she does. So part of it is literally, it's the concentration in terms of housing and school segregation to certain areas, and then having different kinds of culture, you know, of institutional culture applied to black children disciplinary codes in which Black children are treated different than white children. And these disciplinary codes are manifested into how Black students are treated in many Oakland public schools today. Here's Michaela again. It's like you're heavily being watched. It's like you come to school to be enslaved almost because you are under the rules of somebody. You can't argue or advocate for yourself. You eat when they tell you. You go to the bathroom when they tell you, which is also super, like, wild that somebody could even tell you you can't go to the bathroom. We're in this environment where it seems like you're protecting the environment from us instead of protecting us from the environment. Michaela feeling enslaved with a heavy police presence around her in school is not by accident. In fact, the police on OUSD campuses are often the same police that are patrolling the streets. And the history of policing in general dates back to slavery. In the North, police protected property, white property. And they were also tasked with union busting. And in the South, they were literally former slave patrols. And when you take all of this history into consideration, Dez says it's to no surprise that some schools with police on campus function the way they do. Anti-Black racism, complicit bias, and fear of Black and Brown students is so embedded in our curriculum, in ideology and pedagogy in schools that it drives administrators and adults to call police on children. Once really engaging in the work and doing the data and breaking down, disaggregating the data, we realized that we had a population of Black students who make up about 26 to 28 percent of school population, probably less now, and make up about 70 percent of all suspensions, expulsions and arrests. And, you know, once you start to really peel back the curtain, then you really start to other you see other things come into play. And so that was obviously, you know, something that came to our attention. It was like, we definitely have to do something about it.
after the break, we learn about the recent fight by the Black Organizing Project to get cops out of Oakland schools and why that fight took nine years. Don't forget the Tales of the Town album is out now. Go and stream. All proceeds from the album go towards supporting people's programs. Here's a snippet from Holla by Cheyenne G, Ian Kelly, and Miles. You think this a baby jungle, don't you? You want my death on your hands, revenge is upon you. Fuck the metal detectors, my skin is enough of a threat to you cause my presence got your hand glued to your hip, I bet you. I see a good cut, stay hours away from my hood. I see another cut who tried to change the system for good. How can you redesign a system with a foundation of a slave plantation disposing of shit, I'm good. Representation ain't the answer cause the founders stay on top. So when 12 is on my yard, that's a future inmate watch. But somebody letting 30 off right around my block, guess you wanna get them young. You don't care who's in the pot, we taking each other out, helping you out with your job. Boys in the hood, one less to worry about not all of us will be scared straight you the main opponent and my focus is stopping you from feeding off of our corpses at age five my uncle put up to my class probably was the first and last time i ever hugged a badge i'm not bragging it's just trauma and i got conflicted thoughts i just seen him as my blood now we having heavy talks i got relatives on both sides of the coin and master looking in my backpack that shit must be destroyed brush down to the basics learn war from who abducted us popping your head in my notebook only to reminding us shy slow down they can't keep up Before the break, we talked about the history of policing at OUSD and throughout the Bay Area and how that impacted students like Michaela and Dez. Then I decided, like, if I'm going to work and I'm going to really slave, I'm going to have to do it towards something that really matters, you know, something that's really going to impact real change. In order to take a stand against this injustice, Dez joined the Black Organizing Project. So I just Googled. I said Black Organization or something like that. And then Black Organizing Project popped up and they actually had a job listing and it was for an organizer. And I thought I knew what an organizer was, but I really didn't. But I applied for it and I went there and I didn't get the job, but they were like, you know, you should definitely stay engaged. And me, again, recognizing that this was a unique space, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm super down. Whatever I can do, I'm going to do it. And so I stuck around as a member. I've been there since 2016 and once becoming aware of their campaign and it being like directly related to my experience, I was like, this is just divine. Like I've, I went through all that. It wasn't in vain because now I can come to this work. I can engage in this work. I can speak to what's really happening in practice versus what they say should happen in policy and stuff. And so that's how I found BOP and I've just been down ever since. And through the Black Organizing Project, Dez learned of their ongoing campaign to get police out of Oakland schools following the killing of Raheem Brown by an Oakland school police officer. And so at that point, Black Organizing Project became aware of the political landscape and the police landscape happening in our schools. And so they created the BOSS campaign. And from day one, the ultimate goal was eliminating school police by 2020. And over the years, Black Organizing Project has been able to get rid of other messed up policies in OUSD, like willful defiance, which was a policy that allowed teachers and admin to suspend and push out students for the most minor things, like chewing gum or not taking their hat off in class. Getting suspended for not taking your hat off in class? That's ridiculous. And it didn't stop there. We also got a board policy passed, which limited and specified the roles of Oakland School Police Department because we realized that they had free reign and really no goal as to why they're there and no limitation as to what they could do. 
We also got a memorandum of understanding passed between our school board and Oakland City Police Department to also kind of limit and mitigate some of the harm that our students were facing by the incidents they were having with law enforcement. So the Black Organizing Project has done some amazing work. Their Bettering Our School System campaign, also known as BOSS, has been working to get police off of OUSD campuses for the past nine years. Dez explains the reasoning behind their work. So for the first two years, it was really just about building community, restoring community. But then once we found out about the killing of Raheem Brown being by a school officer, and then not shortly after they actually promoted that officer to be chief of police, it was like a blatant disrespect, like a blatant slap to the face of not only the family of the the victim, but of the Black community in Oakland in general to say, not only are you not going to be held accountable for taking an innocent life, but you're even deserving of a promotion to even be an overseer of other officers. The struggle to get police out of OUSD schools was a protracted one due to the police's power and influence in the town and because the Black Organizing Project's ultimate goal was complete abolition. It was always abolition, and nobody wanted to touch us, nobody wanted to talk to us, because 10 years ago, that was like crazy radical, especially in a city like Oakland, where you know how embedded police is with our city and how corrupt our police department is. But that was always the goal. And City of Oakland officials, they seemed to advocate for everything that the Black Organizing Project was against. During a town hall meeting, Libby Schaff, she flat out said that she doesn't believe Oakland needs to defund the police. In fact, she's allocated around $692 million for the 2021 to 2023 budget to the pigs. Despite pushback from city officials, despite the mayor doubling down on her support for OPD, and despite pushing for something that many people considered unimaginable, Black Organizing Project stuck to their mission and vision. In the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis, the Black Organizing Project introduced a resolution in their boss campaign, known as the George Floyd Resolution. The proposed resolution would eliminate the police department and the sworn officers on OUSD campuses. It would also direct the superintendent to reallocate funds previously used for the pigs towards school-based social workers, psychologists, restorative justice practitioners, and other mental or behavioral health professionals. The hope? That this will meet the material needs of the students. It's a resolution that the Black Organizing Project tried to get passed by the school board before, but were initially turned down. After George Floyd's killing, we took it back up to the board and we named it after him. And we really held them accountable and held them on the spotlight. We also organized the entire city of Oakland and had like everybody come out and support us nationwide, statewide, calling virtually into the school board to stand in solidarity with us. And Dad says at the time, the school board was thinking they could just develop their own resolution within the district without any community input. They've always done it without community input. So we had to fight them and say, we don't want to be participants in this process. Like, you're not going to do the work and then run it by us. We're going to be at the table with you, doing the work alongside you, and we will have decision-making power. And after nine years of fighting to get police out of Oakland schools, a huge victory happened. 
And so we got that passed and successfully completely eliminated a police department. And to our knowledge, we're the first in the nation to do so, in addition to ending the contract with OPD in our schools. The resolution passed unanimously. And now that it's been approved, the school police are officially disbanded. I personally myself cried because I literally was just thinking about all the times I was arrested, the months that I was out of school and all the trauma that I experienced in that in that process and really just hoping that students in Oakland would never have to experience that. It was divine. But the fight continues to keep the mentality of anti-black policing out of OUSD schools. It's important to note that just because the physical police are off of campuses doesn't mean the racist mentalities that governs them left as well. It's still been a fight every single day to stop these people from trying to revert back to what they're so used to doing. We want to transform the culture, but that's not going to happen in a couple of months. As a matter of fact, it's not going to happen for about two to three years is how we envision it before we really feel confident that school sites will not call the police on students. And because they knew it would take a minute to get all this to happen, they broke the campaign into phases. The first phase is creating an alternative safety plan that the schools can use instead of calling the pigs. But then we also had to look at transforming the culture by implementing certain practices that schools needed, like restorative justice, transformative justice, mental health response, counselors, and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of like the phase two. And then the phase three is like full implementation to where everybody is under the same accord on school campuses and know how to treat students, know how to advocate for students, and know how to stop criminalizing students. What Des just gave us is an important lesson about the process of abolition. Abolition is about destroying these systems of oppression. But more importantly, it's about creating new systems for our people to thrive without the threat of incarceration. So it's clear it'll take some time to really remove the culture of policing at Oakland schools. But Des keeps fighting for students like my mentee, Michaela. The mission to, like... (laughs) get police out of environments that's supposed to invoke learning is needed. Number one, like that is like almost <laughs> dire. There's there's not going to be any, especially after the pandemic, kids have to get off of the, like leave the safety of their homes for the ones who feel safe to go back into an environment that has police is not really, not going to help. And Michaela says... There are other things that are important, like making sure students have basic access to food. First, I would make sure that somebody is checking on the like the food resources that they have, because that is a big part of how kids act, how kids learn, how kids develop themselves. If they're hungry and not able to like get nutrition, how are they going to be able to communicate in school? How are they going to learn? How are they going to pay attention? I would just like have them rebudget and decide to put money back into the kids instead of putting money into disciplining them. 
And for Dez and the Black Organizing Project, the work doesn't stop in Oakland. In fact, it could be a foundation for other organizers in their fight to abolish the police in their own school districts. Our ultimate goal is to successfully implement police-free schools and then also be a blueprint for everybody in the nation and possibly internationally to do the same thing and to not silo this work to just Oakland, but to really be able to impact our school system and how we educate everywhere. future that Michaela, Dez, and so many others across the country hope to see is not one that is far-fetched. A world without police on school grounds harassing our youth is well within our reach. It will just take a lot of work, and it will also require a non-wavering approach by organizers in their communities. Because when you're dealing with city and government officials who claim to be in support, but push forward budgets and legislation that says otherwise, you got to be ready to stand on what you believe in. So before we end, let us put you on this. Put me on some. Put me on some. Yes, the Black Organizing Project was successful in getting legislation passed that got police off of OUSD campuses. But what does this actually mean for the youth and community of Oakland when the police state in the town continues to grow? Almost a year after we saw the Oakland School Board pass the George Floyd resolution, the city of Oakland made a deeper investment into the police force and the policing of the community. OPD's budget increased by nearly $38 million. And we have to consider the fact that OPD has a history of going over. So they may very well end up spending $700 million between 2021 and 2023. 2021 was a year of contradictions, and 2022 has been more the same from Oakland City officials. While they claim to want to work towards abolition and decreasing police power, the reality is the opposite happened. The people of Oakland saw CHP officers' jurisdictions expanded into neighborhoods and commercial properties, private security forces hired to roam the streets of downtown Oakland, and the formation of a new FBI task force. One can assume that this increased presence of law enforcement led to the killing of Jonathan Cortez, who was killed by an FBI agent in Oakland. At about 3.20 Monday afternoon, relatives tell me 30-year-old Michael Jonathan Cortez was shot and killed by an FBI agent near Fruitvale Avenue and Blossom Street. The agent was part of a U.S. Marshals Task Force serving an arrest warrant. When you take all this into consideration, can we truly say we're taking steps toward abolition? Or even steps toward decreased police presence and their interactions with the youth of Oakland? The government officials of Oakland have always made a living through their sleight-of-hand tactics, making the community believe one thing through big performative news conferences and stories. Then simultaneously, just when they got the people's guards down, they imposed contradictory measures, leaving some folks in Oakland to wonder where their priorities lie. This, of course, is a rhetorical question. We know exactly where the city of Oakland's officials' priorities and loyalties lie. With the pigs, they always have and they always will. But yet and still, the community is ready to fight for what it believes in. And in the spirit of the Black Panther Party, folks like Michaela, Dez, and the youth of Oakland are ready to see this fight through to the end, where real revolutionary change is won. And lastly, 
We know that there's been recent shootings at Oakland schools. And the solution is still not the police. Because with more police, there will be more violence. White supremacist violence. The pigs don't address the systemic and cultural issues that lead to inter-community violence. Only the people coming together can do that. Like Huey Noon said, we have to develop an undying love for our people so that our people do not fall victim to these white supremacist systems of oppression. So the fight continues. On the next episode of Tales of the Town, how COVID has impacted Oakland's Black community. What we've been seeing is like an increased amount of folks on the street as a result of COVID-19. Places that we serve, there's way more people there. There's folks that are might have been housing unstable who are now forced to live on the street because they don't have work and they don't have access to work. There's no method for folks to get healthcare and there's no method for folks to get tested. That's next time on Tales of the Town. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Abbas Mutakim, and Delancey Parham. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking is done by Daniel Suleiman and Bashir Mack. Mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi Miller, Lauren Newsom, and Jaron Tindall. The theme song was produced by Cheyenne G and Carrie Lynn. The music from the Tales of the Town album that we featured on this episode is from Cheyenne G, Ian Kelly, and Miles. Special thanks to Desiree McSwain Mims, Donna Merch, Michaela Coates, and the Black Organizing Project. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell everyone about us. <laughs>